0: We are on page 17 of your notes as we continue going through Christian theology. And we are beginning a new section. If you remember when I gave this to you a couple weeks ago, uh, up at the top, I had to regrettably inform you that it's not section 3, it's section 4 that we're in. So uh, you know, make sure that you make a note of that <clears throat> in the official minutes. We're not in section 3, we're beginning section 4, and that is the section on Christology. Christology. The nature of Christ. And uh, we have already talked about the nature of God and the nature of man, and how appropriate it is now that we come to the nature of Christ, because who is Christ but the God man, right? 100% God, 100% man. Here we we go. We're going to combine some things that we've learned and talk about who Jesus is, okay? Uh, Before we get into that specifically, I want to just ask you by way of review. What do we believe about the Godhead? Who can sum up our belief about the Godhead in just your own words in a sentence or two? Three and one. Okay. It's kind of like the oil. <laughs> what, uh, can you define the three and the one?
1: The one, that all three are God.
0: Okay. All at one time, they're God. Okay. So what are the three? If they are not three Holy gods.
1: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay, and uh, they don't divide that up between them. They good. Resolve. It's one God.
2: Yep.
0: One. Very good. So we have three persons in one God, right? Mm-hmm. Simultaneously for all eternity. Isn't that something? Okay. Now here's the kicker. Why do we believe that? <laughs> Do we have any other argument or any other plea when it comes to why we believe that there are three persons and one God? Is it just as simple as the Bible tells us so? Yes. Very good. Yeah. That's kind of a trick question. Yeah, it is. Okay. Now, are there great, are there great documents throughout history uh, that have articulated the doctrine of the Trinity really well? Sure. Yes. Have there been uh, influential organizations and groups who have taught the Trinity, who have upheld the doctrine of the Trinity, who have affected us? Well, yes, certainly. Uh, If some of you were raised Christian and you were raised in a Christian church that taught the Trinity, that was very influential in your life. But the foundation for the reason why you believe in the Trinity is because of the authoritative word of God, right? If it's any other reason, then you need to change it. Okay? You, you believe in the Trinity for the wrong reason. But if you're looking at Scripture and saying, look, this is just where Scripture leads me. There are three. All three are God. All three are eternal. There's only one God. Well, then you've arrived at the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture. Okay, Well, let's talk about Jesus, the Son of God, who is God from all eternity. And it's appropriate for us to begin with his pre-incarnation. Before he was born. Before he came to earth. It's important for us to consider that time of his eternal existence. If Jesus is God, then he has existed eternally. His birth wasn't his beginning. Your conception or your birth was your beginning, you could rightly say. It's really conception, isn't it? But for Jesus, it wasn't his conception. It wasn't his birth. That wasn't his beginning. The Son of God is eternal. And there are three particular New Testament texts that help us to see Christ's glory in eternity past. We're going to look at two of these specifically today. I don't know if we'll get to the third, but there, these are the three, John 1, 1, John seventeen five, and Philippians 2, 5 through 7. If you want to get a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, we won't say veil because that has too many connotations around here, right? Uh, we're not talking about veils, okay? We'll just talk about curtains. If you want to get a peek behind the curtain, what was Jesus up to before the Word became flesh? These three passages can really get you going down that road, okay? And uh, we're getting ready to look at John seventeen five and Philippians 2, uh, but we'll also look at John 1, 1 later on. All right? So let's talk about John 17, 1 to 5, and we should read it first. So let's all turn there, John chapter 17. And verse 5 is what we're going to hone in on, but we should read 1 through 5 just for a little bit of context and uh, more of a foundation leading up to that verse. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus praying. The Son of God praying to God the Father. Would someone read verses 1 through 5 for us? Stan, go ahead.
1: Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you have have gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, verse 5 is, again, where we want to dwell. And can you... Look at that verse and start imagining why that verse is critically important as it comes to understanding what Jesus was doing in his pre-incarnate state. What do you got? Did Tim Hawkins not get your brain going this morning? Before the world Okay, so we have this language of before the world began, which is, you know, you, you see this in the New Testament quite a bit. Uh, before the world uh, as a phrase brings us to before creation. Okay? So you're going before Genesis 1 1. How does the whole Bible begin? Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if you're reading just Genesis, You don't get to go before creation. You start at creation. And what's interesting about verses like these that we're looking at is they're taking us before Genesis 1-1. So this is before the world was. And what does Jesus say was going on? Before the world was. In this verse, what was happening? He was in
2: glory with the Father.
0: Okay. He was sharing in glory with the Father. And as Jesus here is praying... He, of course, is in his humanity, praying to the Father while he's on earth, and he's a Jew. He was born under the law, Galatians 4 tells us, and so he's a Jew praying, and that's why in verse 3 he says, I'm praying to you, the only true God. Here he is praying, saying, he shared in the glory of the only true God. Okay, now let me read to you Isaiah 42, 8. You can just make a note here, and we've talked about this before in this class, but You can't emphasize it too many times. God said in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. So if you have two beings, one of the beings, the Lord, and the other being a creature of some sort, because those are really your only options, right? Creator or creature. Does the creator ever... Share any of His glory with any creature, not even Mother Teresa. Well, it's an one. Stop it. Uh, yeah, uh, the, you know think of the most righteous person you've ever known, the holiest person, the kindest, sweetest, most loving person. Will God share His glory with that being? No. Well, in Isaiah 42:8 says, "No, I will not give My glory to another." So as Jesus prays here to the Father in John 17, 5, in such a way that his disciples can hear, this is preserved through the Apostle John, he said, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Past tense, an event in the past where there was glory that was shared between Father and Son, the glory that God will not share with another. So, as he's praying to the Father and he says, glorify me, we can first recognize this is an act of the Father. Jesus is the recipient of the glorification. Father, glorify me together with yourself. He's asking the Father to do this to him. And when he says, glory I had with you, it's difficult to phrase this, to put this into our terms today without erring in some way or another. But there's a sense in which Jesus existed as the Son of God in eternal glory with the Father. Yet when he came to earth, when he was born of a woman, born under the law, there was a sense in which his glory was veiled. He didn't cease to be God at any point in time. He didn't become 50% God so he could be 50% human. He maintained his true status as deity, 100% God, while taking on a true status of humanity, 100% human, all right? But he's asking the Father to glorify him, meaning something has been veiled or covered, emptied. That's the language of Philippians 2, where we're about to Okay, there's a, uh, a children's song that we sing on Wednesday nights. You came from heaven to earth, Okay. To show us the way. It came from heaven to earth. And of course from the earth to the cross. Our debt to pay. Do you guys know this song? Yeah. We could all just jump in and sing. <laughs> <laughs> and from the cross to the grave. I'll just put a bad looking tombstone. And from the grave to the sky. Because Jesus did ascend. Didn't he? He ascended back to heaven. And rose again in newness of life. And he maintains his glorified body as he he's praying you know, here at this point as he's on his way to the cross. And there's something that has happened where his glory has been veiled. Jesus didn't walk around in unapproachable light whenever he was on the earth, did he? But he talks about God dwelling in unapproachable light. And so when Jesus took on the, a house, a tent of flesh... His glory was in some sense veiled, yet he was going to be glorified again as the Father was going to raise him from the dead and glorify him. And again, he's taking our mind to before the world was in this also, saying that in eternity past, he had glory with the Father, which denotes an eternal existence as well. Okay, so you got all this stuff going on in John 17, just in verse 5, which is really uh, critical to understand who Jesus is, the nature of Jesus Christ. So thoughts or questions on just uh, this passage here, Virginia?
2: So what you're saying is that before the world was, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created this world.
0: Very good. Yes. Yep. And each one of them is listed as creator in Scripture. Yes. And so, uh, but we don't get anywhere in Scripture. There are three creators, and that's the challenge with trying to wrap your mind around that the Trinity stuff is like, okay, there are three. They're very clearly three but then the Bible's very clear there's one. And so what we have to do is uh, use terms that we can understand. There's one essence, but three persons. There's one being, there's one what, and three who's, okay? One God, three persons, okay. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. All right, well, let's go to Philippians 2. Turn forward in the New Testament to Philippians chapter 2. Very, very important passage with so much to see. And let's go ahead and read 5 to 11. Would someone read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11? Who's got that? Rex? Thanks. Got
1: it. <clears throat> Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus Who, being of very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
0: All right. Well, you can see when you get to passages like this, there are massive implications about Jesus and his nature. And uh, we need to examine these passages carefully and slowly, okay? Just so many grand statements that are found here. Uh, in verse 5, where Rex started for us, we see that Paul got to this place in the letter because he's instructing the believers in Philippi about the attitude that they are supposed to have. Have this attitude. So he's teaching them something ethical, something moral, something about the way they relate to one another. They are to be humble servants toward one another, loving servants toward one another. And For an example, the most powerful example, as he's teaching them this, he points them to Jesus. He says, this attitude was also in Christ Jesus. Well, how did Christ display humility? You could say, well, everything he did in life was just of service to other people. He was always serving people. You think of washing feet. I mean, how humble is that? You think of even... Dying on the cross, taking on the the blame for sin, and he was spotless. He was totally pure. All of that is humble. But what Paul's actually going to use as an example before he uses those other examples is the very fact that Jesus was on earth in the first place. The greatest example of the humility, of humility on earth, you could say, in the whole history of creation, is that Jesus Christ. Existing eternally as the son of God even came to earth. That he even descended before he ascended. Look at verse 6. It says he existed in the form of God. So again we're going past. Past tense here. Existed. He had a real existence. There was real being before his birth. Before his conception. There was real, true existence. And this existence wasn't as some angel. This existence wasn't as uh, some secondary God or as a competing God with, you know, the one true God or anything like that. He was existing in the very form of the one true God. Because scripture, if scripture is clear on anything, it's clear on there's one true God, okay? All the gods of men are idols, the psalm says. But we have one God who made the heavens. And he was equal with God. You see that in the next phrase? He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't take personal advantage for himself of this equality that he had with God. He shared in the divine nature in the fullest sense. He didn't have one foot in godhood and one foot in a creaturely status. Okay? Go back before creation, Jesus is totally, completely, fully, truly, comprehensively, exhaustively, every adverb or adjective you want to throw on there, God. And when he comes to earth, it's not that now he reduces his godhood so he can gain some humanity. He retains that fullness of Godhood as he goes into humanity. He just adds to his existing nature as God, a human nature. And in that sense, he emptied himself. Because this is a very humble act, isn't it? Is it a promotion for Jesus to go from the status he had to being in the form of or likeness of one of us? (laughs) No, no, no. This is the ultimate demotion, isn't it? As far as existing in glory and perfection for all eternity and then coming to a fallen world, that is a demotion. But he was motivated by love. The Father sent the Son. The Son willfully came, motivated by love, and he existed here among us. He emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, you and me, And being found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself continually. So the very act of becoming man was humble. And then while he was in the form of man, he continually humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took the form of a servant. This is God becoming man, not man becoming a God. Hold on just a second, Joe. I just want to share one thought on this. There are going to be times you'll encounter somebody who will say that Jesus uh, was just a a man, a creature like us, and at his baptism or at, I don't know, they'll pick some point in Jesus' life and they'll say at that point he became divine. Well, Philippians 2 really shoots that down, doesn't it? (laughs) Philippians 2 has that order completely switched. He's always been divine, and at a point in time he became a man. It wasn't that he was a man and at a point in time he became divine. That's just the opposite of what Philippians two is teaching. Yes, Joel. Yes. What does that mean? That is a a billion dollar question, isn't it? Well, we can start to answer that by saying what it doesn't mean. All right. It does not mean that uh, Jesus reduced his divine nature. It doesn't mean Jesus gave up being God. God never gives up being God. Right, uh, the the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is just unbreakable. You can't break up the Godhead. It's not that Jesus came to Earth and the Trinity became a denity or binity, you know, whatever prefix for two you want to put on that. It, that's not what happened. Okay, so we have to rule that out totally. It could mean that he willfully gave up the exercise of certain attributes. So, for example, when Jesus was living his life on earth and teaching, perhaps you remember when he's talking about his own second coming, he's going to come back to earth. He says, of that, uh, that time, no one knows the day or the hour. And he adds, not even the son, but only the father. Okay, now that's pretty interesting. So you, you could have, well, see, Jesus knew the day or the hour before he took on humanity, and then as he took on humanity, he gave up certain attributes of his uh, knowledge. He didn't give up his omniscience completely, but he gave up certain privileges of that omniscience. That's what some people say. Now, the problem with that is that uh, Jesus still showed a lot of omniscience. <laughs> he went, Perhaps you remember this, too. As he would teach, and someone would disagree with him in the crowds, the scripture says, Jesus, knowing their hearts, said to them this, that, or the other thing. So he knew all things. Okay, Now, did he exercise his omniscience in a different way? Maybe. Uh, another problem, though, with that verse is that apparently the Holy Spirit doesn't know the day or the hour because it says only the Son knows, not the Father. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Why doesn't he know the day or the hour? And that becomes a whole different issue, too. Um, emptied himself could also mean, instead of going down that route, we could go down the route of he cloaked himself in the form of a creaturely existence in such a way that, that his status was humbled. It's a general statement. It doesn't get to the specifics. But it conveys this idea. He left a glorified status and a glorified place to come here. And that demotion could be described as an emptying. Okay? So the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. Jesus, at that point, pulled back the cloak that covered his glory. And they saw Christ in his glory. And then a few moments later, he was veiled again. His glory was veiled. And so perhaps just the, the entire process of going from heaven to earth is what's Paul, what Paul has in view here of just saying he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Okay? But, yeah, that's a difficult one. It's difficult. Other thoughts or questions on any of that business? I'm sure you do have questions, but you're being merciful to me. Thank you. Okay, well, any thoughts or questions on Philippians 2 5 and 7 outside of the emptying stuff? Uh, Verse 6 Form of God, he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're tracking? We're good? Good deal. Well, what was Jesus doing before he came to earth? Now, this is an interesting question, because you can you can say simply, well, he was just in glory with the Father. But what comes to your mind when you think about that, just sitting there twiddling his thumbs? Now, some of you with a Baptist backgrounds, you wouldn't say they were playing cards for all eternity, so what, let's see, what could they be doing, <laughs> you know? Uh, well, we actually have some information on that, too. Yes, Stan? God gave him. Things for him to do. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah, we actually already discussed one of the activities of Jesus uh, in the pre-incarnate state when we said he's creator, right? That Jesus was uh, active as creator. All things were made by him, for him, through him. So Jesus is a creator and he creates things with the Father and Spirit. So we have creation, and we'll look at these three passages before we get into uh, messenger. Okay, So you can jot these passages down, and we'll look at them, where he is creator, and then we also see that he was active as messenger. Now these are the uh, three big passages that we'll look at in more detail, probably starting next week, as you see on your uh, sheet there, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Those are the big three when it comes to uh, the deity of Christ. Though John 17 and Philippians 2 that we just looked at are pretty massive as well. But uh, let's look at John 1, 1 through 3. Just touch on it briefly. Someone want to get that for us? John 1, 1 through 3. Okay, go ahead.
2: In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made
0: that was made. Okay. So, there is not one thing I don't super like that word, but sometimes there's no other word you can really use. <laughs> there is not one element of creation that exists that came into existence apart from Jesus. Now, does that, does that elevate your thinking of the Son of God? It should, right? Uh, that should put Jesus at a very high place in your mind. That not one thing exists apart from Jesus. Pretty big implications with that, isn't there? Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at what that has to say. It's going to be quite similar to John 1. Colossians 1, 15, we'll do 15 to 17. Who's got that for us? Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Go ahead, Mike. He is the image of the invisible God. All right, pretty massive statements there, right? I mean, these are comprehensive terms. All things were created through him, by him, all things in heaven and on earth, through him and for him. And it adds there too that he is before all things. I'll read to you from Hebrews chapter one. So you've got the testimony of John there. Uh, that Jesus is creator, testimony of Paul, Jesus is creator. Perhaps Paul is the author of Hebrews, we're uncertain, but uh, you have the author of Hebrews affirming this also. Hebrews 1.1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, Through whom also he made the world. Through Jesus, God made the world. Through the person of the Son, God made the world. So creation was through him, by him, for him. And this is, of course, a unique function of God, isn't it? Being creator. I have emphasized this maybe in every class I've taught, uh, every session in this class anyway but it just bears repeating because we live in this place where we have Mormons who teach something different. Creator is a unique function of God. And there is but one God. There is one creator. There aren't many creators. There isn't a succession of creators. There isn't an infinite regress of creators. There is one creator and this title of creator and the act of creating is unique to the one true God himself. And now we'll look at another function of the Son, and this function is unique to the person of the Son. Jesus, before he came to earth, was not only creator, but he was messenger. He was a messenger. So you can write these passages down, and there are several that we could look at, but we will just highlight these three passages where we see Jesus acting as messenger before he was incarnate. Okay. and I'll add, go ahead and add that here as you write those down. So being creator is a unique function. It's a function for God alone. Being the messenger through the Old Testament was a unique function of the Son. And of course there were other messengers as far as angels go, but there's a, was a special type of messenger and we'll look at that momentarily. We still doing all right? It's doing good tracking along. Aren't as many fireworks with this lesson as there were in some of our previous ones. So that's good as long as we're all tracking along. Let's go to Exodus 3 together. Exodus chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. Someone. Read that for us. Exodus 3, 1 to 6. Who's got it? Where are my readers today? All right, again. Very good, Mandy. Thank you.
2: Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Borah, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed see this great
0: sight. Okay, let's um let's stop right there for a moment. Uh, I know I'm in the middle of Moses's quote, sorry Mandy. But uh in verse 2, who's this person interacting with Moses? The angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord. Okay. Now, how do you often remember this story? I'm just curious and maybe this you won't answer the question like I thank you Will. But as you remember the story, how do you remember it? Who do you think is speaking to Moses out of the bush? God, I
2: always thought
0: it was God. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It just comes to your mind. Like, well, God's speaking to Moses out of the bush. Okay. Well, you're not wrong. Let's keep reading. Okay. In the middle of Moses' quote. Sorry, Manny. That's
2: okay. Why the bush is not burned, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, You're writing then he said, "Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground." And he said, "I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God.
0: Okay, so we've got a couple of indicators here that we're not dealing with just your run-of-the-mill angel. <laughs> You guys know what I mean, right? You've had those uh, many conversations with those average angels. (laughs) I hope not. Uh, But you see in verse 2, again, I want to point this out, that we are talking about the angel of the Lord. Now, you can dwell on several things here. One is that we do get the title the, not an angel of the Lord, or one of the angels of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Now, also pay attention to the term here, angel of the Lord. That is different than just saying an angel. And you'll see that because it th- this term shows up multiple times throughout the Old Testament. This isn't the only place you get the term or the title, the angel of the Lord. This is a specific title for a specific person. Okay, so you have all that in place as you drop down to verse four, and it says... When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, the angel of the Lord called to him? Or what does it say? God called to him. So now we've run across an equivocation or a, uh, I don't know what's a better word than equivocation. I don't know. A, uh, another term referring to the same person. You have the angel of the Lord meeting with Moses and in verse four, He calls out, and the text says that it's God calling out. The angel of the Lord here is equated with God. And in verse 6, he speaks. So now we're outside of the narrative. Now we're going to a direct quote from the angel of the Lord in the bush. And the angel of the Lord is saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Meaning, the flame of fire that was in the bush, not consuming the bush, looking at that would be the same as looking at God in Moses' mind. And of course, Moses is the one who wrote Exodus, so he's the one who wrote the narrative in between the quotes. And he is here saying, the angel of the Lord is God. Pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? You guys got any thoughts on that? Rex.
1: Isn't that uh, where we see all capital letters, Lord, not capital L, smaller case? That gives little clue
0: there. Where, you know, all you know, So we've got uh, two Hebrew terms being used for God here. In verse 4, you have the all caps Lord, which is Yahweh. And that's the name that God is about to reveal to Moses in the following verses. Uh, it's just a few verses down where um, Moses is told that that's God's name. Look at verse 14, uh, Exodus three fourteen. 14. When uh, Moses asked God, what's your name? God says to Moses, I am who I am. Thus, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the name of God. That's the revealed name of God. So when you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, in the Old Testament is where you'll see that. And it refers to the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. But you see here also in verse 4 and in verse 6, and in ver- verse, no, verses 4 and 6, you see you just have the standard capital G, God. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. Okay? And uh, it's referring to the same. Okay, Yahweh is Elohim, Elohim is Yahweh you'll perhaps sometimes encounter the LDS argument that Yahweh or Jehovah, okay, Yahweh sometimes will be translated Jehovah. Well, that's referring to Jesus, but Elohim is Heavenly Father. You guys ever heard that one before? It makes zero sense, okay? It's inconsistent throughout the Bible. There is no way to consistently maintain those definitions. You have both titles being applied to both Father and Son. So, Anytime you hear that, just say, have you ever checked that in the Old Testament? (laughs) And the answer will, of course, be no. But uh, you have Lord Yahweh being applied to the Father and to the Son. You have God, uh, Elohim, being applied to Father and Son. And there's one more Hebrew word for God. That's the word Adonai. And in your Old Testament, that shows up capital L, Lord, lowercase, O-R-D. And uh, that's the least used out of the three. Joe, did you have a thought or a question a minute ago? Yes.
2: Then why is angel
0: capitalized? That's a translation decision. You can learn Hebrew, make your own Old Testament, capitalize whatever you want. <laughs> or if you want to go through in your print Bible, you can just put a capital A there if you want. That'd be fine. Yep, that would be fine. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions on Exodus 3? All right. Judges 13, when's the last time you read Judges 13, huh? Been a while? (laughs) Book of Judges, it's the seventh book of the Old Testament. After Joshua, chapter 13. And let's look at... Drop down toward verse 8 here. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and start reading in verse 1, okay? Let's read a little bit of a longer section. Sorry. All the way at the top of the chapter. Uh, here is your theme for the book of Judges. Judges 13:1. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord... Gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. Well, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord, here you go, verse 3, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God. Now notice the language she's using here. She doesn't say the angel of the Lord. Uh, Perhaps you didn't know that title, but she says, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Verse 8. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us again, uh, or sorry, teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said, She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Now let's drop down to uh, verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? Oh, interesting. So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. And that's kind of like the end of that line of questioning. <laughs> okay. Wow. And uh, drop down to verse 20. What it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven. That the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. That's how uh, the angel of the Lord uh, goes away. And it says in verse 21 that the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. And uh, Manoah knew at that point that he had seen the angel of the lord now that is just an extremely interesting interaction isn't it that would rock your world and that would change your life but what are we seeing here in these descriptions that help us to understand a little bit more who the angel of the lord is What, what did you see in that story Where did you see that?
1: Oh, in he like angel of
0: God. Yes. And so right there, there, we're not saying, or she at that point isn't saying, this was a mere angel. She's saying he looked like an angel. And so there was something about the countenance, about the appearance, that was angelic in nature. And of course, this is before there was a full understanding, which they never even really get to a full understanding, how could you, of uh, this messenger's status as the angel of the Lord. Like that last verse I read, verse 21 or 22, whatever it was, then Manoah knew he had seen the angel of the Lord. And
1: we have Gabriel, which is not listed here, but when we do, isn't that listed as just an angel? Correct, or Michael.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Carlos. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, what, what else are we seeing in this passage that's interesting? There's much to see. doesn't give his name. Okay, what, what does he say instead? He gives an indicator. my name
2: wonderful.
0: Yes. Now, where, does that take your mind anywhere else in the Bible? Wonderful name, Isaiah. Good, Isaiah nine six. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That's pretty cool, huh? I like that. What about his appearance? We touched on that already, uh, verse three, um, or whatever verse it was. He was like an angel. What else does it say? This is verse 6 about his appearance. Yeah. An awesome appearance. Very awesome, actually, is what it says. Very awesome appearance. I would imagine so. She also
1: calls him man.
0: Yes. Yeah, you can see that they're not getting this instant grasp. I mean, she's saying... There's this angel stuff going on. He's got an awesome appearance, but there's something that relates or conveys manhood about this. What do you suppose is going on there? How could she say that he's a man of God?
1: He looks like an everyday man.
0: That she was from Okay, in some sense, right? Because he's still very awesome. And I'm assuming she didn't say that about her husband.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, okay, yeah. So, But there was something about him that had a, a mannish figure, you could say, where uh, there's she's obviously having a hard time processing this, as we all would. And it sounds like she's kind of processing these things out loud. He's man of God, and he's like an angel. He's very awesome. And all Manoah wants is just to see him for himself because... He's probably not picking up what she's putting down. It's not making sense. And Manoah did get to see him. And uh, that's where we have that interaction with the name. Okay. And you see, too, in um, oh, verse 20, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And so here we have a unique aspect, too. Someone who's just a man can't just ascend. Right. It can't just appear for that matter. So you have this appearing out of nowhere and this ascending going on that denotes some sort of supernatural activity. And uh, in verse 21, as a result of all these things, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. That specific title. Okay? If you go down to 22, he says that we
2: have seen
0: God. There you go. Very good. Huh. And before that, we're, we will surely die. Yeah, Because as Jesus taught, no man can see God and live, right? Okay. But, but Jesus is God, and people looked on him all the time because, again, there was some sort of bailing of his glory, some sort of uh, cloaking of his absolute glory. And uh, that apparently was going on, too, with this angel of the Lord business where you have one of the persons of the Godhead... Namely, the sun appearing mannishly but also angelically, very awesome, yet people don't die. now. <laughs> that's yeah, an interesting thing. What about the um, I am? You said, yeah. So, you know, you can you make anything out of it other than, you know, I am what I am? Yeah, there is definitely a connection back to Exodus 3 where God, the angel of the Lord, is speaking to Moses and saying, tell them the I am has sent you. And then you kind of fast forward in your mind to Jesus' ministry, particularly as the Gospel of John describes his teachings. What do you hear over and over again in the Gospel of John? Jesus saying, I am the door. I am you know, the good shepherd. I am the vine. On and on you go. I don't think that's a coincidence. You have Jesus teaching in John eight fifty eight before Abraham was, I am. So there's this constant connection back to this very simple phrase, I am. And yeah, you even see it here. I think that's a good catch, Mike. Anything else from Judges 13? Oh, wow, we only have like two minutes left.
2: <laughs> oh, we got a late start. Take
0: one, <laughs> It was a bit of a late start. Well, let's flip to Zechariah 1. And we'll just hit this uh, briefly today and we'll pick up here tomorrow. The second to last book of the Old Testament. Does that help you find it? Zechariah 1. And we will go to... um, We want to end up at verses 12 and 13, but... We'll start in verse uh, 7. The book of Zechariah is an amazing book. If you haven't read, it's 14 chapters, you need to do so. And it's filled with all sorts of visions. And so we're going to uh, check out one of these. In Zechariah 1, starting in verse 7, it says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of... the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw that night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said, They're horses, you dummy. No, he said, (laughs) I will show you what these are. Verse 10. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me, the gracious words, were with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And we'll stop there. This is uh, an interaction between Yahweh and the angel of the Lord. Does that mean that the angel of the Lord is not Yahweh? Because in Exodus 3, you have Yahweh speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, and Yahweh is the angel of the Lord. But now you have Yahweh speaking to the angel of the Lord. What does this do to our theology, friends? Well, perhaps you can remember Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord sit on the throne until I make uh, your enemies a footstool for your feet? How can the Lord talk to the Lord? Because there's one Lord, but there are three persons, aren't there? Okay, We'll stop there for this week. I um, handed out a couple of weeks ago, I didn't have any extras today, this uh, sheet that goes with our lesson. It's got a lot of words, front and back. Okay, (laughs) looks like this. And on one side, it's Norman Geisler's Systematic Theology, where he talks through the angel of the Lord. And on the other side, you have Titles of Christ. And we'll get into some of those in the coming weeks. But uh, I'll have extras of that next week. And for those of you who don't have it, sorry, you'll get it next week. Okay? Well, how about I pray, and then we'll head on over and continue worshiping. Father, thank you for this day and for our time together. Please help us to continue to behold your glory in Scripture, that we would honor you rightly, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, and that Jesus would be lifted up in our hearts. And we ask this in his name. Amen.